0: And you will see there is a lot of, <coughs> uh, uh, in general, in popular media, especially in media, uh, most of these bans and these uh, legislations they usually have a media campaign leading up to them. Firecrackers, there was a media campaign leading up to it. Sabrimala judgment, there was a media campaign leading up to it. Uh, the uh, um, in 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 the the Jallikata campaign, there was a there was the Jallikattu judgment, there was a media campaign leading up to it and so on and so forth, what enables this kind of wide-ranging public interest litigation and uh, wide-ranging regulation and interference, in specifically Hindu uh, affairs, religious affairs is the structure of the constitution and uh, the structure of the constitution, there are certain aspects which give freedoms to practice religion with caveats. The essential practices doctrine from being any practice which is essentially religious in nature which was a wide ranging you know freedom from that it has been whittled down to essential practices in the ajmer sharif case and then in the sabarimala case it has been thrown out of the window we don't even care whether your denomination or your uh, uh, you know what your duties are and what it says if we find that is that it is in conflict with constitutional morality we reserve the right to throw it out. We reserve the right to the judges or the bench of the Supreme Court, reserves the right to intervene. The last lecture and the discussion after the lecture, uh, kind of dovetails into my topic. Uh, in the last discussion we were discussing about how wealth of temples can be managed and uh, uh, participation in bonds and financial schemes. Which will monetize the uh, wealth of the temples, which is largely in the form of gold and uh, ornaments and artifacts and such uh, such things. So the big uh, doubt that was raised here was that if the temples uh, do not have the uh, an independent management and if they are unable to make a uh, educated informed choice, how will the scheme work? So that is a larger question of uh, general you know, uh, rights in terms of freedoms offered for managing religious institutions and uh, that dovetails into freedom offered for uh, rituals, practices and uh, uh, general the practice of religion as such and uh, what we find is that there has been a slew of uh, judicial activity over the last uh, 15 years or so, which uh, uh, where the judiciary has stepped in and very often made wide ranging, uh, you know, judgments of wide ranging uh, impact on uh, uh, conduct of festivals, on rituals, observances. So you can, um, there is a history to it right from starting from bans, uh, there was a legislative action in the early part of the 21st century to ban animal sacrifice in temples on the part of the Tamil Nadu government which had to be taken back after a lot of uh, public outcry and a lot of popular discontent over the proposed act. However, there are other things which have come from the center from the Supreme Court which uh, have been challenged uh, on the ground in terms of popular sentiment, but which have still held sway. Uh, So we can take examples of the Sabarimala judgment of last year where Uh, the restrictions uh, on who can and offer, can and cannot offer uh, worship at the temple at what time and so on. These freedoms were of the temple to manage its own uh, affairs with respect to ritual practice uh, were set aside by the Supreme Court. Um, Similarly uh, the Supreme Court also set aside um, the practice of uh, bullfighting Jallikattin, which resulted in a lot of popular outcry and popular discontent. Uh, There are other, even recently the Tripura High Court had banned the uh, practice of offering animal sacrifice at the Shri Mandir and uh, there have been other bans, I mean the courts have interfered on, there is the Dahi Handi, where you have a Dahi Handi in Maharashtra, where people form a human pyramid, there the courts have intervened and said what should be the height of the Dahi Handi, how many people should participate and so on and so forth and basically the courts have taken uh, wide brief uh, to uh, uh, mandate and regulate uh, religious observances and uh, it is not, I mean last year again we saw the ban on Diwali firecrackers on the grounds that uh, they were causing pollution and particulate pollution and so on, uh, which uh, despite a lot of uh, facts and uh, information being provided saying that the main cause of the pollution was not the firecrackers. Which were fired off during Diwali, but due to crop stubble burning around the national capital due to different uh, changed agricultural practices, but still that was not admitted by the court. You had again bans on cockfights during religious uh, festivals, you had uh, uh, restrictions on Nag Panchami on grounds that uh, Nag Panchami festivities were harmful to uh, the snakes and uh, where the snakes are worshipped, but people said it was actually you are torturing the snakes. Um, and you will see there is a lot of, <coughs> uh, uh, in general in popular media, especially in media, uh, most of these bans and these uh, legislations, they usually have a media campaign leading up to them. Firecrackers, there was a media campaign leading up to it, Sabrimala judgment, there was a media campaign leading up to it. Uh, the uh, um, in, in, in the the Jallikata campaign, there was a there was the Jallikattu judgment. There was a media campaign leading up to it, and so on and so forth. Now there are various aspects to it. One of them is that there is a lot of this uh, you know interference is on the part of the judiciary is due to suits uh, or lawsuits and uh, legi- you know uh, 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 litigation filed public interest litigation filed in the courts by organisations which have. Uh, which have some may have some vested interest in the way these uh, litigations are run. That is an angle from the foreign funding perspective, which I will probably touch upon, I have touched upon in another uh, discussion, but which we won't touch upon too much in detail. What enables this kind of wide-ranging public interest litigation and uh, wide-ranging regulation and interference in specifically Hindu uh, affairs, religious affairs is the structure. Of the constitution and uh, the structure of the constitution, there are certain aspects which give freedoms to practice religion with caveats. So, I would like to uh, you know point your uh, attention to certain articles of the constitution. Article 19 says that uh, you know protection of certain rights regarding freedom of speech, to assemble peacefully, to form associations or unions, to move freely throughout the territory of India and to practice any occupation, carry on any occupation, practice any profession, etc. So there is a state that says that nothing shall affect the operation of any existing law or prevent the state from making any law, in so far as such law imposes reasonable restrictions on the exercise of the right in the interests of the sovereignty and integrity of India, the security of the state, friend relations with foreign states, public order, decency or morality or in relation to contempt of court, defamation or incitement to an offence. Now this is about regarding the freedom of speech assembly, uh, freedom of association, right. So you have the freedom of association, but it is subject to reasonable restrictions with respect to public order, decency, morality. Right, so that is article ninety, article 25 freedom of conscience and free profession, practice and propagation of religion and that as soon as you say that the Indian state guarantees freedom of conscience and free profession, practice and propagation religion, it immediately says that it is subject to public order, morality and health. So uh, and there is a specific article 25 to be which says that nothing in this article shall affect the operation of any existing law or prevent the state from making any law, providing for social welfare and reform, right? or throwing open of Hindu religious institutions of a public character to all classes and sections of Hindus. So it is on the basis of these clauses which says that you have the freedom to practice your religion, but there are certain reasonable safeguards. One of the reasonable safeguards is that it should not Uh, It should not infringe upon public order, morality and health. It should not infringe upon people's freedom freedom of conscience and their fundamental rights. And it should provide for social welfare and reform only for Hindu religious institutions. Social welfare and reform is restricted only to Hindu religious institutions, mainly because at the time that the constitution assembly was convened the idea was there were certain protections that were to be offered to people right there were certain practices such as restricting access of people to uh, the temple which were of a public character again it specifically states that if the temple is of a public character right i can restrict suppose i have uh, i have a, a small private mandir I have a, suppose I am rich enough, I have a big enough house, I have a small private mandir in my house, I can restrict access to who needs to come in, who doesn't need to come in. I can say that if you have, you know, uh, for example, I can say that, you know, mutts, for example, do not restrict uh, entry of people in shorts. I don't want to have you in shorts, there is a dress code to my temple. I don't want you to, you know, uh, come to my temple drunk, it's a restriction that I place on my temple. right? or if I am a particularly nasty person, I will say that people of this caste should not come into my temple. Right, there is nothing in the law to prevent me from being nasty in my private property. Right, it just makes me a bad person, it doesn't make me make my action illegal. Then 26, freedom to affair, freedom to freedom manage religious affairs again subject to public order, morality and health. Every religious denomination on any section thereof shall have the right to manage its own affairs, I I just uh, ignore the other uh, clauses, it says to manage its own affairs in matters of religion. So there are certain things that, which basically bring, uh, there are certain questions that you have to now ask. Now that we have this basic information about the constitutional provisions, we have to say what constitutes public order, morality and decency, especially what constitutes morality. And what kind of freedoms are covered under this, what is a denomination and what is a practice. So this brings us to certain doctrines, which are embedded in the constitution, the essential practices doctrine, so I will just walk you through the essential practices doctrine through certain landmark judgments and how it has evolved constitutionally over the years. And also the definition of denomination or the restriction to denominations, certain specific denominations to to manage their own religious affairs. And we will walk through the basic structure, uh, uh, the basic structure uh, doctrine which is embedded in the constitution. So uh, let me first walk through the essential practices doctrine. So uh, anything, if you say that this is a religious practice and I need the freedom to Conduct this religious practice to participate in or this, to run this religious practice, it has to pass the essential practices test. What is this essential practices test? This entire test and the doctrine of essential practices was evolved through several landmark judgments. The first one is the 1954 Shirurmat case. In the 1954 Shirurmat case, most of these I'll tell you the most of these judgments, most of these doctrines are expounded in cases and in judgments where the original case was not really directly related to the doctrine, but it was uh, some other kind of dispute, uh, some other kind of dispute. In the Shirur Mutt case, uh, the Shirur Mutt is one of the eight Mutt's in Udupi, uh, which manage uh, the temple in a rotation basis, it is called the Pariyaya system, where the Swami of each Mutt, eight of these Mutt's. The Swami of each Mutt uh, manages the temple and offers the primary worship at the temple in a rotation system. They have a period, the pariyaya period. So uh, one of these Mutt's is the Shirur Mutt and the Swami uh, who came into the Mathadibati's uh, the seat uh, was uh, Lakshmindra Tirtha Swamiar. and this Mathadibati, when he came to his seat, he was a, a junior. He was uh, he was uh, he was less, he was a minor and therefore there were people managing affairs for him, uh, the Mutt's affairs for him and after he became, came into his majority, he started managing affairs by himself. The Mutt ran into financial difficulties and they were forced to go out and borrow money and so on and therefore at that point in time, the Shirur Mutt and the Udupi region was under the Madras Presidency and the Madras Presidency had a Hindu religious and charitable endowments rule doctrine uh, act, under the act they appointed somebody to Come and manage the affairs of the mutt. And afterward, there was another person. This, this person became the proxy for somebody who wanted to take over the entire mutt's affairs, just keep the swami as a figurehead and manage the entire affairs. And eventually this uh, transformed into a power struggle where the Swamier had to uh, uh, evict the person appointed by the HRCE board. And among the points of contention were the practices which were carried out in the temple by the Shirvarmatha Swamiyar, and the question came up as to whether this is freedom of religion and whether it is essential practice. So in this judgment, there is a interesting section of this judgment where I will read it out to you. In the first place, what constitutes the essential part of a religion is primarily to be ascertained with reference to the doctrines of that religion itself. If the tenets of any religious sect of the Hindus prescribe that offerings of food should be given to the idol at particular hours of the day, that periodical ceremonies should be performed in a certain way at certain periods of the year, or that there should be daily recital of sacred texts or oblations to the sacred fire, all of these would be regarded as parts of religion and the mere fact that they involved expenditure of money or employment of priests and servants or the use of marketable commodities would not make them secular activities partaking of a commercial or economic character. All of them are religious practices and should be regarded as matters of religion within the meaning of article 26 B and article 25 to A. So, what it says is, if you go through the essential practices test, 1954 Shirurma judgment, as what it said was, an essential practice should be essentially religious in practice. It should be essentially religious in nature. If it is essentially religious in nature, the state does not have any authority to comment on it or to regulate it. Except where there is, I mean, you can have a religious ritual where people um, there, there are religious rituals where there are aspects of self-harm. Um, for example, there is the nana where people eat and then the people roll over those uh, leaves after they have eaten. There are uh, hook swinging uh, practices where people get themselves strung up and hung by a hook which is uh, put into their, plunged into their flesh. There is an aspect of self-harm, but you cannot, uh, as long as it does not exceed uh, certain limits and actually involve human sacrifice or you know, there were certain practices like children being buried alive, which I read in the newspapers, which I cannot trust, but the children were supposed to have been buried alive for some time and then brought out or something like that, which was uh, pretty disturbing, the way it was described. So maybe things like that, you would the state would have a, uh, uh, ma- maharam is essential practice, is essential practice which the state does not interfere in. But even if there is self harm, swinging from hooks is similar to moharam, where people actually cut themselves open with uh, uh, sharp objects. So uh, the state will not interfere except if you are giving human sacrifice or you are going to commit suicide or something like that, right which is extreme in nature, in which case the state will deem it necessary to uh, 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 to intervene. So that was the Shirurmat case. So basically, in nineteen fifty-four, and the Shirurmat case, it did not. It, there weren't too many precedents from Indian jurisprudence. So a lot of the precedents which they drew were from Commonwealth countries, which, fo- which followed the British system of jurisprudence. They took examples from, I believe, New Zealand and from England cases in England, and essentially arrived, and then came to this definition of an essential practice, which is that should be essentially religious, and therefore it is. Covered under freedom of religion. The next case was in 1958, Devaru versus uh, state of Mysore. In 1950s, uh, once the state of Mysore adopted the same uh, temple entry rules, which had been adopted by the Travancore state before independence and it had the Travancore state's uh, temple entry uh, law had been brought in with the slight changes had been brought into force in Madras Presidency also and the state of Mysore adopted that. Now there is a temple in uh, Mulkipeta in the west coast of uh, Karnataka and this temple was run by God Saraswat Brahmins, uh, community of God Saraswat Brahmins on the west coast of Karnataka and they said that the laws of uh, the laws of uh, temple entry should not apply to them. Since they were a denomination and as a denomination they had the right to reserve entry and since the temple had been set up as part of their, when their community actually actually came and settled in that place, um, the temple was uh, established for the benefit of their community therefore A they were a denomination, B it was not a temple of a public character and therefore the rules of uh, temple entry should not apply to them they wanted exemption from the rules of temple entry. And the case was decided against the community, the God Saraswat Brahman community. And uh, the reason was that they were not determined, they were determined to be a denomination. They were given the status of a separate denomination, but even though the practice of exclusion was uh, essentially religious in nature, there was an exclusion and Throwing open temples for worship by all parts of the Hindu community had become an imperative for the constitution, for the government of India within the Indian constitution. Therefore, they could not restrict entry, general entry to the temple. But as a denomination, they had certain rights to partake in certain rituals of the temple, where they and they alone had their rights. And therefore, this was seen as an essential practice, and they had their rights. And so, this added a small tweak to the essential practice doctrine, it said that this was essential and you had your rights and there were general rights, there were specific rights to the community and there are general rights, we will not infringe upon the specific rights of the community or the denomination, but we will not extend it uh, to all general rights saying that you had complete and free access to the all managing all affairs of the temple, including getting to decide who enters and who doesn't enter, because the temple while it had been established for the God Saraswati Brahman community, it was also for the benefit of the entire community and the, all the people of all uh, communities around in that region and therefore it was of a public character. So, this, so, there, so there was a tweak to the uh, essential practices doctrine from this case. The next case uh, restricted the essential practice, the definition itself of a restriction essential practice and this case was the was a case in 1961, the Dargah committee of Ajmer versus Syed Hussein Ali and others. So there is a background to it, the Ajmer Sarif Dargah is the Dargah of uh, the Sufi saint uh, Muinuddin, uh, Khwaja Moinuddin Shisti. and uh, there was a community of Khadims who belonged, who were associated with the Dargah, they were supposed to be descendants of companions of the Sufi Khwaja and uh, they were all members of the Sufi Chistia order and uh, during over time, there was always some form of state interference, during Akbar's time, I mean before Akbar's time, the uh, Darga was not in a very uh, rich state, it was in a relatively, it was a kacha structure with people occasionally tra- travelling there and going there and after Akbar's time, a committee was established and the state Actually intervened and made it a helped people make it a paka structure and set up a committee to manage its affairs. Now the Darga committee and the Khadims, the hereditary Khadims, came into a conflict. The primary reason for the conflict was that people used to go to this Mazar at uh, Ajmer Sharif and they used to make offerings. A good portion of the offerings it was taken by the Khadims, and uh, there was a uh, uh, agreement reached with. Uh, representatives uh, uh, you know the administrative representatives whereas these khadims who had a ritual role to play and the administrative people and the darga committee would get a share of the money which was given to the temple now the in 1961 uh, so before that in uh, in before the uh, before independence uh, uh, there was a case saying that the khadims had a right uh, to the uh, uh, offerings and the nazars made by the pilgrims at the tomb and at the dargah and they had uh, gone, it had gone back and forth and it had gone all the way till the Privy Council in London and they said that there was a fundamental right to property as a denomination, they had a fundamental right to property and this was the property of the Chistiya order of Sufis. And uh, <coughs> then when again they came into a conflict uh, um, uh, with the Dargah committee, the submission made before the court was that uh, the uh, Ajmer Dargah was the property of the Chistia Sufi order and the Dargah committee was of general uh, Hanafi Muslims. People Muslims who followed the Hanafi order uh, for Hanafi school of jurisprudence. And therefore, this was an infringement of their rights as a denomination. Uh, The case was disposed uh, against uh, the the Khadims and there is an important, uh, there was an important observation so to speak made by the Honorable Court in this case, says, his religion is a matter of faith with individuals or communities and it is not necessarily theistic. Uh, it, may, it has its base in a system of pliers, doctrines, and uh, uh, but it is not to correct to say that, so after that it say that religion itself is nothing but a doctrine or belief, a religion may not only lay down a code of ethical rules for its followers to accept, it may prescribe rituals and observances, ceremonies and modes of worship which are regarded as integral parts of religion and these forms and observances may extend even to matters of food and dress. So, it says that similarly, even practices though religious may have sprung from merely superstitious beliefs and may in that sense be extraneous and unessential accretions to religion itself. Unless such practices are found to constitute an essential and integral part of a religion, their claim for the protection under article 26 may have to be carefully scrutinized. In other words, the protection must be confined to such religious practices As are an essential and an integral part of it and no other. This is a very, very critical point and this marks a very important turning point in the essential practice doctrine. Earlier, a practice was held to be essential practice if it was essentially religious in nature. Now the practice is held to be an essential practice only if it is an essential part of the religion. Right? Somebody, uh, I think it was uh, uh, I think it was Hari Prasad, one of the people who works in this area, who made the observation that freedom of expression is an absolute and unfettered right. And it is an absolute and unfettered right, only with restrictions with respect to harm. You cannot harm people, for example you cannot shout fire in a crowded theatre, where there is no fire. Right? If there is no fire and you shout fire in a crowded theatre, that is harm. If if there is a fire in the crowded theatre and you shout fire and there is a stampede, you are acting in good faith, you are trying to save people. So that is the nature of freedom of expression. Other than that, I can say whatever comes to my mind. Right? I cannot state that your rights are limited, rights of expression are limited, only to essential expression. For example, this entire talk that I am giving is not an essential expression an essential expression would be for me to come and say that i want tea or you know i need to buy a ticket anything beyond that is an you know it's not really an essential part of uh, expression so you cannot say that i do not have any freedom to come and make this talk here because it's an not an essential uh, pri- essential uh, exercise of the freedom of expression same with freedom of religion you cannot say that you should, your freedom extends only to what is only essential. My freedom might extend beyond, of religious practice may extend beyond what is essential. And if you apply this essential practice as doctrine in Hindu religion, almost everything will be found to be unessential, right? There is nothing which mandates that I have to go to a temple every morning. There is nothing which mandates that I have to ring a bell, Right there is a there is a puja paddati which says that I have to ring a bell, right? And it is not for um, every denomination. For example, some uh, puja padathis might say that it is you don't need to ring a bell. You just mentally you know recite some prayer and you're okay. You don't need to ring bells or show a camphor or you know light an agarbati or whatever. But if you restrict it, then what is essential? There is nothing which is essential. Then again, if you say that it is for freedom of denominations, then what is a denomination in Hinduism? A Swaminarayan Mandir belongs to the Swaminarayan denomination, which is very specific. But who does the Tirupati Mandir belong to? There is no denominational restriction on the Tirupati Mandir, right? But there are restrictions saying that only a priest from the Vaikhanasa uh, school of uh, Agama school, Vaikhanasa Agama school, can be a priest at Tirupati, right? is vaikhanasa a denomination no it is only a school of agama you cannot call it a denomination so under this practice you cannot call almost no hindu except for maybe the arya samaj or maybe uh, uh, the isha yoga foundation or maybe the arya samaj can be called a uh, called a denomination swaminarayan can be called a denomination but the vast majority of hindu practice does not fall under any specific denomination Therefore, no freedoms can be guaranteed and if you guarantee only essential practice, then there is no essential practice. right? So essentially, it, uh, if you look at it, then uh, a lot of questions crop up. Now after this, the other landmark judgment where there were certain very far reaching observations made, was in the Sabarimal case. Indian Young Lawyers Association and others versus the state of Kerala and others. Now the Indian Young Lawyers Association, uh, that is a very interesting case, I will tell you about the genesis of the case itself. In uh, uh, there was a, a major controversy, that there was a, I uh, will give you a bit of a background, in Sabarimala, there is a practice of a prashna where the uh, all matters i mean whether you have to build a roof here or whether you should build these stairs this way everything is decided by directly consulting the deity and the deity is consulted by means of a deva prashnam deva prashnam where uh, there is a process and the answer is that deity gives you an answer so during a deity deva prashnam there was a controversy which erupted saying that the the deity had uh, there was the deity's Brahmacharya or his Brahmacharya uh, state was being disturbed due to uh, women, uh, presence of women or something like that and uh, because of that the Tandri, one of the, the presiding Tandri or the chief priest was came under fire because he was, uh, there were wild allegations of corruption on the base, on the part of the Tantri and so on. And at that time, a Kannada actress came up and made a statement saying that it could be because of me. And the reason she gave was, she was there in the temple, uh, she was there, had gone for darshan and there was a crowd and she was pushed and she went and fell on the idol. So I having been to Sabarimala, I can, it seems very far fetched to me, because there is a distance of about, you know at least 5-6 uh, meters and it's on a raised platform with 4 steps, 3-4 steps and then there is the uh, idol is inside, beyond 4-5 meters beyond, the de- raised platform. However much there is a crowd, if you fall, you will fall on the stairs, you can never get inside. You can never be thrown inside and actually go and touch the deity. Uh, but anyway this, uh, uh, after this, there was some kind of Shuddhi Karanam or something like that done, because uh, a woman had uh, visited and this appeared in NDTV, uh, I believe, as a news. Uh, item and the people in the Young Lawyers Association, they saw this and saw that this was a infringement of fundamental rights of women. These are people who have, who have nothing to do with the temple, who are even if it is open, thrown open to everybody in the world, uh, they are not going to visit the temple because they are not interested in the temple and these people file suit. So uh, it was taken up, uh, then there was another lady who, uh, uh, who asked to be included in the uh, uh, sir, uh This thing. The primary respondent was the Indian Young Lawyers Association, who eventually withdrew. But then there was a secondary uh, uh, this thing, implee, uh, implee, impleed, which was a uh, uh, no. Uh, that uh, the the person was uh, leader of the young Indian Young Lawyer Association, but the secondary impleader, uh, the person who impleaded, was a college student from Punjab University, second year college student, BA student from Punjab University, who impleaded herself. Nobody knows what she looks like, whether she really exists. This is between the years 2006 to 2018, was when this all happened. And this Punjab University student was sometime in 2012 or 2013. A person is Nikita, the name we are not sure whether it is Nikita Anand, in some places it appears as Nikita Anand, in some places it appears as Nikita Azad. We are not sure who this person is. Uh, I don't know what she looks like and uh, she ran a campaign I believe called happy to bleed or something like that. And uh, a supreme court lawyer uh, represented her, she included herself in the case and eventually the case the Indian Young Lawyers towards the end of the uh, trial, the Indian Young Lawyers Association actually uh, withdrew from the case and the case was run on the, on behalf of this person who had impleded, whom we don't know whether she really exists or not. But anyway, the court did take it up and the critical things, as part of the judgment, there were certain observations that the bench made. The court should adopt a differential attitude such such cases touching on religious matters and really deem the practices under scanner as essential but nevertheless investigate whether such customs, beliefs or usages violate fundamental rights of an individual. This is a very interesting observation, they say that we may not have the competence to determine whether a practice is essential to the religion or not. We do not have, we may not have that compa- uh, that uh, competence. We should adopt a differential attitude to whatever the respective experts are saying, but we always have the freedom to examine whether it violates fundamental rights of an individual. In which case this, they held that this violated the fundamental right to dignity of the individual. And the morality as defined, because you are bound by morality, subject to morality, the morality is constitutional morality, not public morality, constitutional morality and this morality of the constitution is not what is determined by society and by public at that point in time. It is something held to be pristine and inviolate in the constitution and this must adapt and overcome challenges thrown to it by society. This is outside the judgment, it is an observation made outside the judgment. So which means that it must adapt and overcome challenges, even if you don't like it, what is there in the constitution will hold. Even if every single Indian is not happy about it, the citizen is not happy about it. What is the constitution? What is morality as defined in the constitution and as interpreted by the bench will hold. It is not a matter of public opinion and it should adapt and transform challenges. It is a transformative document. Whole point is it says that this is a transformative document, the document is not for reflecting what the. What's point of view of society is, it is for transforming society into a certain vision or into a certain mould which the constitution holds. The basic question is whether the recognition of rights, inhering in religious denominations can impact upon the fundamental values of dignity, liberty and equality which animate the soul of the constitution. The right of the denomination must be balanced with the individual rights of each of its members. It would be impossible to conceive of the preservation of liberal constitutional values while at the same time allowing group rights to defy those values by practicing exclusions and through customs which are derogatory to dignity. So it says that individual rights as held in the constitution hold group rights are subservient to this individual rights essential practice is not sufficient to determine that you have the freedom to, to practice it. It is not necessary, it doesn't even have to be essential, it, 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 even if it is essential practice, if it violates certain structure of the basic structure, the basic features of the constitution, we can strike it down and we can intervene. Essential practice, now this brings out from the essential practices doctrine, we now go into the second doctrine which we want to examine, which is the uh, basic structure doctrine. So for this we need to go back to 1973 to the Keshavananda Bharati case. In 1973, the uh, properties of the Ednir Mutt uh, were taken over by the, uh, I believe the government of Kerala, one of the Devasam boards of the government of Kerala, towards one of their land redistribution programs and the Mathadipati of the Ednir Mutt at that time was a Shankaracharya, uh, the Kesavananda Bharati Swamigal and he filed suit saying that his right as a Head of an institution and the rights of the denomination were being infringed upon because the denomination had the right to acquire properties and administer properties freely. And in this uh, uh, this case drew on and uh, the landmark judgment uh, there was certain that raised certain very fundamental questions. And uh, the landmark uh, it was it was uh, probably the biggest bench of the Supreme Court which ever was convened was for the Keshwananda Bharati case, in which there were 11 judges, the bench was composed of 11 judges and eventually they held that there are certain parts of the constitution that is essential or the fundamental nature of the constitution, which they call the basic structure of the constitution. The government even though there is a article 368 gives the government of the day, the right to modify or to alter the constitution, amend, alter and amend the constitution the fundamental character cannot be changed. So that is the basic structure doctrine. So if you juxtapose both of these, what eventually you come up with is that, the essential practices doctrine from being, any practice which is essentially religious in nature, which was a wide-ranging you know, freedom, from that it has been whittled down to essential practices in the Ajmer Sharif case and then in the Sabarimala case, it has been thrown out of the window. We don't even care whether your denomination or your, uh, uh, you know, what your duties are and what it says. If we find that is that it is in conflict with constitutional morality, we reserve the right to throw it out. We reserve the right to the judges or the bench of the Supreme Court reserves the right to intervene. And even if the government of the day legislates to protect these freedoms these legislations can be thrown out because if it, if this legislation is found to violate the basic structure of the constitution. So this is the background and so this is where we are in terms of uh, what freedoms we have. So essentially the freedoms which are given to uh, uh, religious denominations to Hindus are basically there there are pretty limited freedoms, it's at the discretion of the court and at the discretion of the government of the day. So tomorrow, if I have a government which is particularly ill disposed towards Hindus, and uh, the government of the day decides that uh, lighting agarbatis is a polluting activity because it produces smoke, they can ban agarbhatis in your house. Even if it's a, even if you can produce some texts which say that it is essential that I should do my puja every day by lighting an agarbati, the courts and the government of the day. And the pollution control board can intervene and stop you from lighting an agarbati. If you bring your ghanti every day at home, it is sound pollution. Your neighbor is disturbed. Therefore, we can ban you from not ghanti but in your. It sounds funny, but there are. I have seen articles where they write about the kind of pollution that Agarbathis cause, in one of the usual suspects, the newspapers, there was an op-ed which said that lighting Agarbathis is a polluting activity. They said that there was another article which said that you know all this flowers that are offered in temples, it's uh, you know it's highly detrimental to the environment because it produces a lot of waste uh, which should be managed properly and the temples don't manage it, they just throw it and it causes pollution, it causes A, B, C, D. So you can be stopped by this. Principle, uh, if you if you take this uh, if you take it in totality, you can be stopped from offering flowers at a temple. You can be fro stopped from lighting an agarbati. You can be stopped from bajeing You can be stopped from basically anything. Sir, this what
1: word, havan is also the polluting
0: activity. Havan is polluting activity. Everything is polluting activity. See, I will say if you are Hindu, you are essentially you know no you are either uh, you know uh, casteist. Or you are, uh, uh, you know, uh,
1: uh,
0: you are patriarchal, casteist, or polluting. Any Hindu, if you are any Hindu practice, will be uh, uh, casteist, patriarchal, or polluting. uh, It will come under one of those uh, uh, categories. I mean, while it sounds very funny, but this actually gives far ranging rights to the state to intervene and interfere in any aspect of activity. Now, how is it that uh, before the Sabarimala case, when the essential practices doctrine was essentially thrown out of the window, before that, right, non Hindu uh, communities, you know, uh, whether if you take any Christian community or any Muslim community, they belong to a certain denomination. They have certain rules. There are certain essential practices. You have to go to church, you have to go to the Mosque uh, every Friday, you have to say prayers in this particular way, and there is no, you know, nobody can prevent you from doing that because you are a denomination with a laid down set of rules with a leader who can decide on what the rules are for you. You have a religious leader, if it's a Sikh, you have a religious leader in your Gurdwara, he will tell you what you need to do. There is a book, there is a certain practice there are things that you are supposed to do there are things which you are not supposed to do and all of that is essential practice and you have the freedom as a denomination to practice this is available to all denominations and it's basically it restricts freedom of religion only to minorities and the state can arbitrarily intervene in the practices of hindus and hindus alone so that is the constitutional structure now this is the part where i could get jailed But I am going to go ahead and say that anyway. So I did a kind of comparative analysis uh, between Sharia law and the Indian constitution. So so I just just did a basic study of Fiqh which is Islamic jurisprudence. So there are four authorities by which you can determine and every aspect of your life can be determined. What time you should pray? what dresses you should wear, how your property should be inherited, how you should deal to civil uh, disputes, how uh, criminal justice is to be uh, you know, dispensed. All of this, there are very specific, very clear rules. Who can give evidence, what can be admitted as evidence and what is the basis for determining. Fiqh. it says fiqh is the human understanding of the Sharia. So the Sharia itself is laid down by the Quran and the Sunnah and the full understanding was there only with the God, with God Allah and his prophets, final of whom will be the prophet Muhammad. So Fiqh is humans interpreting the will of God and the uh, messages which were revealed to the prophets and the sources of authority, the primary source of authority is the Quran. Second source of authority, next in uh, importance is the Hadith, which are uh, events in the life of the prophet and his companions. Then that comes to Ijma, which is uh, a process called Ijtihad, where you collectively reason and there is concern, consensus among scholars of uh, Islamic jurisprudence of a particular generation and the interpretation by Islamic scholars. So if you see why they spend so much time. In the madrasas, learning the Quran, memorizing the Quran and memorizing the hadith, it's because it's essential. If you have to conduct your life, if the society in Islam, if an Islamic society has to be conducted, you need a large body of people who are well versed in this knowledge to be able to specify what to do and what not to do, how to run things. And Ijma is the collective reasoning. Then, if collective reasoning is not available, there is analogy called Qiyas which is at this point in time there is no collective reasoning so i take anything which is limited in ijma and then go back to the quran and the hadith and then do an interpretation of what is there in the quran and the hadith to uh, make a determination as to any if it's a property dispute or a matter of uh, worship whatever it is i can make a decision a scholar can make a decision now the quran and hadith the quran and hadith is basically the quran is the uh, uh, original uh, you know the preamble of the constitution and the constitution itself and uh, that would probably be the the various judgments which are offered would form the hadith and the ijma and if i'm sitting as a judge uh, on a bench the bench is the current kiyas there is uh, the quran and the hadith there is there can be absolutely no question of any change there because it is a revealed word of Allah, the God himself, there is no way you can go and correct or improve upon the word of God himself. So there has been some constitutional morality which was given to us in this constitution and that cannot be changed for all eternity, it is fixed for all eternity and uh, you can maybe take interpretations. So you would need a large body of lawyers and judges who are well versed, who have studied and memorized this constitution to interpret it for you, to interpret the will of the constitution and constitutional morality for you. So there is a fatwa, A fatwa is is a non-binding opinion which you can take from an Islamic scholar. As a lay person you can go and take a fatwa from a scholar, fatwa can be for anything, it can be for uh, matters of foreign policy, it can be for matters of uh, how you want to educate your children, it can be even you know fatwa says that uh, you know, How many times should I wash my hands before I start my prayer? You can ask a fatwa on that, it's a non-binding opinion. Same way our court set up amicus curiae, who give non-binding opinions, who will investigate a matter and based on the principle of the constitution, they will give you a non-binding opinion. And uh, similar to the Sharia, um, uh, we also have jizya imposed upon uh, infidels in India. We also have uh, uh, specific restrictions on what infidels can do and cannot do, which is the freedom of religion with, which comes with caveats which is basically impringes among uh, the morality of the constitution so you know it, it works the same way in a sharia, in a sharia uh, uh, this thing in a in a, in a in a sharia country in a country governed by Sharia, if the the infidel has the right to practice his religion. But if the infidel comes out on the street and you know does his aarti or uh, does his ghanti, it basically it violates uh, the sense of propriety of the ummah uh, of the mohine, and therefore the infidel does not have a right to violate the sense of propriety of the uh, mohine. Same way the uh, the kufr or the infidel in India. The infidel has his right to go to his temple and do whatever it, uh, he does, as long as it does not infringe upon the morality of their lordships on the bench. As long as it does not infringe upon their sensibilities of the lordships of the bench, you can bhajava ganti and if uh, his lordship or her ladyship decides that your ganti is uh, immoral, they can put a restriction on it. <coughs> well, thankfully we don't stone people to death. Uh, but uh, you know, but uh, our, neighbor uh, our neighbor has got there. Our neighbor has got there. We have blasphemy laws. Article 295 says that uh, you cannot hurt sentiments, and it's in effect a blasphemy law, which says that if you blaspheme uh, against uh, the prophet or uh, or you blaspheme against a particular Christian religion, you blaspheme against Jesus or Mary, you are liable to be punished and uh, uh, that cannot apply blasphemy cannot apply to uh, hindus because there is no blasphemy right i can say whatever i want i can get up here and say whatever i want and i can somebody will find some quote in some scripture somewhere where a great bhakt says the same thing of his god so there is no blasphemy here therefore anybody can get on stage and say anything about a hindu uh, religious figure or a religious uh, text or any religious practice, but the same thing cannot be done for an Abrahamic religion, for people of the book. Our neighbor has gone uh, ahead and uh, our neighbor, uh, uh, article 295, I mean uh, somebody was pointing it out, uh, article 295a only restricts, uh, defines blasphemy and defines a punishment for blasphemy. Article 295c is there in uh, our neighbor Pakistan, where you can be put to death for insulting the prophet death is the, uh, so we are not there yet, but uh, we are getting there. And uh, unofficially you know we still uh, there are people who dole out the death penalty, uh, since we are not there yet, there are people who are uh, ahead of the curve and who are doling out the death penalty when the prophet is insulted. So that is the state of affairs and if you look at why. I had, you know, people are thinking about why? Why is it that you are ringing a bell or you are lighting an agarbatti or you are doing something or restricting someone from your temple is such a big problem for him or her. Right? I don't have a problem with what you do, what, what some other denomination or what other sect does or how they lead their life. Why does somebody else has a problem with me? That's the question that we all ask. And this has been, you know, something which is, uh, which, which has been uh, pagans have always confronted with, and pagans simply can't get their heads around this, right? Wherever an Abrahamic religion has set foot, as a conquering religion has been, uh, and they start imposing restrictions, the pagans initially say that these people, yeah, they do something different, right? They pray five times a day. We pray two times a day. Okay, you pray, no big deal. Okay, you don't eat this particular kind of meat, I don't eat this kind of of meat, which is okay. we just do different things differently, but probably we do the same things, right. So the Pagan thinks that this is just another form of whatever he is doing, he or she is doing. But to the Abrahamic, it's not the same thing, the Abrahamic, to the Abrahamic, everybody has to have a certain way of working, there is a certain way of worship and whatever else, there is a certain reveal revelation whatever is not part of this revelation is false and it is a duty i mean there is depending upon the denomination certain denominations uh, for example the older denominations of the orthodox church or the jews say that okay it's not false but it's not doesn't belong to me somebody is doing it i don't have any particular need to go and correct him right but the later and later versions iterations of the abrahamic uh, religious meme they see a compulsion to go and correct, right? If you take your the Protestant uh, religions, they are compelled to come and correct you. It's part of you know spreading the good word, spreading the good news is part of their uh, responsibility, right? Same way with uh, later uh, with Islam, dawah is a responsibility. Spreading the good word. There is something so wonderful here which you are missing out on, and spreading the word is a responsibility, and therefore. Anything that you do is seen as strange if it is not mandated as per a book and as per revelation given by the God who is the single source of truth and therefore you have to be corrected. That is the thinking which animates, so that is the same kind of thinking which animates uh, the present arbiters of our fate uh, on the bench. And they say that there is, they say, this is exactly the same constitutional morality which they are talking about. They say that the popular sentiment may not reflect what this morality is, but it has to adapt to the challenges thrown by society and it has to transform society. The principle of this constitution is to change this society. It is not to help the society run itself according to what it sees as right, but it is to change this society in a certain direction and in a certain image. We want to remake this country in a certain image. So those were some of the observations I had and this is not without precedent. Uh, The Edict of Thessalonica, I mean one of the Roman Emperors, basically banned all pagan practices, offering worship at shrines, animal sacrifice. People say that the Olympics were stopped at certain point in time, some 400 AD or something like that, nobody says why they were stopped, the Olympics as with other pagan practices, Olympics, the games at Olympics and all of these were uh, related to some form of worship of Gods. Right? So there was some, there would be something to do with Zeus or Jupiter or Hera, there would be some form of worship with any kind of activity with horse races, games and so on. And so this was a means for the flock, for the pagans to stay away from the church. So therefore the emperor banned it, because he said this is repugnant to us, right. So uh, let me take that, let, me, let us come back 1600 years to 2006, in the Madurai bench of the Madras High Court. In the Madurai bench of the Madras High Court, a case came up, uh, I think it was Sami Tevar was the respondent. There was a dispute in a temple, uh, the temple used to have an annual fair, some kind of uh, Mela and part of the Mela was they used to have a Rekla race, a Rekla race is where a single ox is tied up to a cart and they have a race and it was linked to the temple festival and they believed that, uh, it was a belief that if you have the Rekla race this year, you will have good race because it satisfies the uh, you know, the god in the temple, Aynar god in the temple. And there had been a dispute between different castes and different factions in that village and therefore the uh, religious festivity was stopped. And Munisa Mitevar approached the Madurai bench of Madras High Court with a submission, asking that the Rekhla race be continued. Justice Banumathi was on the Madurai bench of the Madras High Court at that time, she is now on the Supreme Court and she said that this cannot be allowed. The Ray race cannot be allowed since it constitutes cruelty to the ox. And unilaterally, she included cockfighting and Jallikattu practices. You know, she was never; the, it was never under the under discussion. But she included these practices and said these are also repugnant since they involve cruelty to animals. And she said we cannot allow permission. And then you had the activist ecosystem which picked up on that judgment and tried to pass it, so that and took it all the way up to supreme court and uh, a lot of chaos happened. If you look at it, before this judgment or before this, nobody knew what it looked like. Nobody had even seen it. The biggest festival was something which was attended by a few thousand people in a village called Alanganallur, somewhere on the border between Kerala and Tamil which nobody even cared about. It will happen for one day in a year and a few bulls would just run and some guys would go and hang on to the bull for 30 seconds and then you can't hang on to a rushing bull for more than 30 seconds, such a powerful creature and just fall off, right? It Happens for one day in a year, somewhere in some remote corner, somewhere in this country and why does the supreme court get so animated over it? It's because it's observance, it's pagan and it's essentially repugnant. Right, All of this story about you know animal rights and women's rights and environment and all that is just you know the uh, language which is employed at, at core, it is this repugnance towards a uh, exhibition of the, of the pagan or the heathen exhibiting their uh, religious practice or their behavior which is repugnant to an Abrahamic morality at core. That is my submission and uh, Uh, We can, I mean we can uh, question it, we can debate it, but that's my submission and that's the basically the crux of this uh, uh, talk I had to deliver.
2: Thank you sir, Uh, first of all I do agree on each and every point that you have mentioned. Uh, I also believe that Indian constitution has been built on values that are alien to India, because for example we have blasphemy law. The majority religion has no concept of blasphemy we have um, some laws uh, defining the essential practice and abrahamic religions may have some pillars but there is no pillar or we can say millions of pillars in the majority religion so we cannot definitely define what's an essential practice or not but in case uh, in certain cases for example in ramjan muhumi case there was an uh, incident when the court has to decide if mosque is an essential part of islam or not And that was actually used by the uh, Muslim group that this is an essential part and they lost on it. So this is how the case uh, turned towards and in benefit of the Hindu community. So at some point of time, do you think there has to be some uh, mediation or some uh, control of code defining what thing is essential or not?
0: See, in my perspective, unless a practice is, unless you are doing something like you know passing disease germs or something like that, you're, unless you are doing something which is totally repugnant like you know disturbing people, getting drunk, disturbing people or public order is being made, is being lost or you are doing some serious harm, like you know killing people or uh, sacrifice or something like that, I think you should pretty much, uh, the state should stay out of it.
2: No, I mean if, if that would have been, if it was proved in the court that a mosque is a national part of Islam, then the current state of affairs in the Ramjan Bhumi case would have been different. So, if something could have been decided uh, by the community itself, because Muslims would have never said that this is not an essential part of Islam and therefore we cannot give up uh, on, the, on our claims, then the court has to come into and then decide if this is a part of or not.
0: See, Ramjan Bhumi, in my opinion, is less about uh, uh, practice and more about who owns the title to that property who has rights to that property, who was there first and who was wronged, you know, who was the wronged party, who is the aggrieved party and who is the uh, aggressing party. So that was the crux of the argument and uh, whether it was essential for the practice of Islam or not was incidental.
2: Yeah, this was a case that ran parallel with the uh, actual case of Ranjali, but it has very uh, huge importance in deciding the final verdict which has yet to come. So,
0: but uh, remember that uh, in the Sabrimala judgment, the essential practice doctrine itself has been thrown out of the window. So then uh, all bets are off.
1: This is actually with regard to our constitution and the courts. Personally I am a believer in parliamentary democracy. I do think sometimes and I am sure many others think like me that the court is sort of overstepping its boundaries and getting into areas that it shouldn't be. Case in point being the Sabrimala judgment also if you may recall that there was one lady judge who actually ruled in favor of the freedom of religion, which was very ironic, the the male judges did not. They had the most, yeah, yeah, that's right. She was the person who actually said the court should not be actually getting into these nitty gritties of religion, you know, these small matters, um, but leave religious practices. But we have a parliament, which is actually above the court, if I'm not wrong, that even if they decide that something is not essential, cannot the parliament put in an act and bring it in by majority? So there is a Reflecting the people because… And this is the next question: That do you personally also believe, having gone through the Constitution, many important sections, that the Constitution itself is anti-majoritarian, like what uh, Francois Gautier had said, that it is the only Constitution in the world which is against the majority of the country? It's anti-Hindu.
0: Um, I wouldn't call it an anti-Hindu Constitution by design. So uh, first, uh, the the liberty of the legislature to legislate acts uh, and laws. Uh, with respect to freedom of religion will still be constrained by the basic structure doctrine. It says that the article 368 which gives the uh, the legislature the right to bring acts, the legislator and the executive to right to bring acts or GOs, if it violates the basic structure of the constitution, it can be struck down by the courts, A. So therefore there is a restricted right to the legislature. Then. Uh, b I don't think our constitution was uh, you know against Hindus by design there was uh, there were certain aspects of uh, secular uh, secular uh, practice and secular states which our constitutional experts uh, took up. see the that one thing we must remember at that time was that the uh, there was no sense of beleaguered that Hindus were being beleaguered or there was no sense of, the threat. sense of threat to Hindus was far lesser, because there was a partition had happened and we had said that the two nation because of the two nation theory, this question has been settled once and for all and we basically we have got one state for the, one country for the Muslims, one country for the Hindus and so this has been settled, so therefore this is going to remain a secure, Hindus are going to remain secure in this country, Their more concern was about how to protect the minorities because especially in the wake of violence of partition, how to protect the minorities in this country and they gave them certain uh, uh, defences. See the, the 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 law is used as both as a sword and a shield, the, in, the intent behind the uh, original framers of the constitution was to give a shield to minorities which were way lesser at that point in time. Christians were a very small portion of our population at that point in time and the Muslim population was not as big as it is now because Their uh, their proportions were not as big because there was a huge, there was a huge uh, you know partisan because of which Muslim bulk of Muslim majority provinces had gone off into Pakistan. So their concern was about protecting the ability of Muslims and Christians to uh, you know to run their affairs and the uh, categorization of Sikhs and uh, Jains as minorities uh, was still pretty far from their minds, because the distinction between the Sikh Jain communities and the Hindu community was not as sharp as it is today, as it has been made out to be today. It was pretty nebulous. Was, uh, and uh, the real minorities, I mean if you take it today, the real minorities are the Parsis yes. in India, who are a real religious minority. And who don't need really need any protections because they are pretty well off in terms of uh, a representation in uh, business in uh, in economy in law etc so their concern was with the uh, uh, the uh, the muslim uh, leadership and a lot of the aristocracy had gone off to pakistan and the people who remained here were the relatively lesser privileged people and for christians it was a small it was a small uh, uh, population it was about 2 to 3% of the population at the time of uh, independence so their concern was to give these people a shield They had never thought that this constitution will be used as a sword against the majority. And that is uh, something which has happened, so if you look at the education laws, laws of freedom to education from 1947 to 1950, when the constitution was adopted, to the adoption of RT, I think Hari Prasad has got an excellent presentation, which says how restrictions, rights of uh, uh, Hindus were restricted further and further and further. Uh, and uh, while there was no similar restriction placed on the uh, uh muslims and christians uh, to conduct in educational institutions so that that is my submission my submission is that it's not anti hindu by intent or by design but it is by it has become uh, you know uh, discriminatory to hindus by practice over the years and through subsequent amendments and uh, judgments and so on and there
2: is one reason uh we can say that it is acting even if not by intent is that our uh, lawmakers were mostly educated in the so called secular countries and uh, had thus uh, I mean the law system a lot of laws were taken from these countries where it was a notion that majority is always against the minorities and it's it always they always tend to uh, run over the minorities and it could have all uh, I mean this could have also been a reality in western countries. But they applied this point of view over uh, on India itself. It's, uh, I mean, the majority in India was never like that. It was conspiring all the time to um, to, re- to convert every minority religion to, uh, into the majority. So this this could have been a reason that uh, although it was not intended to be made anti-Hindu, but since the laws were taken from countries where the point of view was that majority is always against minority, it was a reason for that
0: maybe there was also i must remind you that the hindu samaj has been uh, very much on the defensive on certain aspects right for example a uh, very easy thing to you know put you on the back foot whenever you're discussing about freedom of uh, uh, temples temple freedom they'll say you are going to hand over the temple to the brahmins right it's very easy to put you on the defensive because we have certain certain uh, you know our own there are certain weaknesses right which we have to acknowledge right in terms of you know caste discrimination in terms of uh, you know discrimination against women, which we have to acknowledge, uh, for example, the Sharda Act, which was brought in for restricting the age of minors. Before the Sharda Act, we know so many people who got married at a very young age, and uh, early childhood, early uh, pregnancy, and uh, death during childbirth, or for the matter, not uh, for that matter, treatment how widows were treated. Uh, you know, I I personally you know my own childhood. I know ladies who became widows at a, before they were even you know before they even went to join their husbands. they had a child marriage at nine years and they became a widow the lady became a widow at eleven. she lived till she was eighty one she had her head shaved wore white clothes through her life you know so if you just bring all this up, it's very easy to put us on the defensive right these uh, so I think the framers of our constitution were also of that same mindset where uh, you know we at this point in time with the hindsight of having so much reform and so much improvements in the, in our even uh, all said and done we still have problems with respect to treatment of women, with respect to treatment of uh, you know uh, scheduled caste people or caste related uh, discrimination, we still have issues, but all said and done we have come a long way and we are far less apologetic than our uh, you know people one or two generations before us were that's also a factor I believe. So thank you, you've been very patient with me and I thank you for that.